Well, brothers and sisters, I don't think I need to tell you that we are living in unprecedented times, at least for our United States and for much of the Western world. One area where we are experiencing something new is the intrusion of government into var- at various levels into our personal lives and into the life of the church. The introduction of COVID into the world a little more than two years ago, gave rise to the exertion of power from civil authorities, which has been widely called draconian measures. I hear that all the time, and I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up, and apparently Draco was uh, a ruler in ancient uh, Athens who made unusually harsh rules. And so draconian measures refer to the unusually harsh and severe rules that are coming down from government these days. We also hear much, at least in our Christian circles, about government overreach. We have faced from the federal and state governments forced lockdowns, quarantines, the shutdown of businesses and restaurants, social distancing, the wearing of masks, the demand for getting the so-called vaccination and its follow-up boosters. And a lot of people from the military to the medical community and in between have lost their jobs or have their jobs threatened because they've refused to get the jab. In Canada, where their prime minister, Justin Trudeau, actually looks to Xi Jinping of communist China as his role model for government. And in January, they passed a bill, C4, which makes illegal conversion therapy. That would include Christian counselors who try to lead a homosexual person into God's ordained pattern of heterosexuality that is criminal and could be punishable by imprisonment. James Coates was imprisoned. At least one Canadian pastor, James Coates from Alberta, was imprisoned in 2021 because he and his church refused to follow the, the overly strict mandates given for their church to worship, and he did time in prison. And then after he was released from prison, they still prohibited the church from meeting. They actually barricaded it with several levels of barricade. And for weeks or maybe months, the church had to meet as they meet in communist China. They had to meet in secret locations for worship. This is Canada. Australia has become a virtual totalitarian state. Well, in light of all of that, it is more appropriate than ever to ask ourselves, what is our responsibility to human government? When are we to comply and obey with human government? And are there occasions when we should not or even must not obey human government? And so I ask you to turn in your Bibles once again to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, and last week, actually, for the remaining chapters of Mark, we are in the final week of our Lord's mortal life on earth. This is Tuesday. On Friday of this week, he will be betrayed by one of his own disciples. He will be arrested, falsely charged and accused, and turned over to the Romans for execution. But prior to that series of events, several attempts are being made by Jesus' enemies to engage him in discussion, and they're trying to trap him in his words. They're trying to get him to say something by which he would incriminate himself, which would give them a grounds for arresting him and then proceeding with his his disposal. The attempt to trap him that is recorded in Mark 12, 13 to 17 is the second such attempt by his enemies. I read that text, which we considered last week. 
Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were greatly amazed at him. Now, these are strange bedfellows, as I said last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were poles apart philosophically and religiously, but, and frankly, they hated each other. And yet here they are teamed up against Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus was a threat to both of them. He was a threat to both of them. Jesus' person and his teaching cut with a two-edged sword. On the one hand, the Herodians were very materialistic. They were very sensual, very fleshly. The Jews who followed the Herods were, were, had only a thin veneer of religion. And of course, Jesus' teaching cut against that. Jesus' teaching was otherworldly. It wasn't worldly. But then the Pharisees had a religion that was very external, very ceremonial. It lacked heart connection to God. And Jesus' teaching cut against that as well. And so even though these two groups hated each other, they hated Jesus more because Jesus was a threat to both of them. And so they come to Jesus flattering him, hoping that he would make some bold, blunt statement which would get him in trouble. And they ask him the question, which is a hot-button issue in that day, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Remember that Roman occupation and Roman domination of Israel was a, an emotional matter for the Jews. The Pharisees, and even more so the, the Jewish nationalists, the Zealots, hated Roman rule. They, were, they despised the idolatry that pervaded so much of Roman society, and they chafed under the idea of paying tribute to Rome by paying this poll tax with a coin that represented Caesar as semi-divine. That was contrary to the monotheism of Israel. The zealots even refused to pay the poll tax. But um, the Herodians, on the other hand, they were glad to pay the tax because they were the ones who had sidled up to the Romans. They were in bed with the Romans, and so they were supporting a government which supported them. So these two groups have a totally opposite opinion about the poll tax. And they pretend to be in a, you know, a, a sincere debate about whether it's right to pay the poll tax or not. So they put that question to Jesus, thinking they have him in a no-win situation. If he says, yes, pay the poll tax, the, the uh, hope would be that by that Jesus would turn off the pious Jews who view Jesus as Messiah. Wait a minute, how can that be our Messiah if he's caving in to the idolatrous Romans? But if Jesus said, no, don't pay the poll tax, then the Herodians could run to the Roman government and see, insurrectionist, we have a rebel here, hoping that he would suffer the same fate as that Judas the Galilean who was killed because of a rebellion against the poll tax recorded in Acts chapter 5. And so they think, Jesus, we've got him on the horns 
of a dilemma. Well, what does Jesus do? He asks them to produce the Roman coin, the denarius, probably from one of their own pockets. And he says, whose image is on it? And they answer rightly, Caesar's. And indeed, it had the likeness of Tiberius Caesar and his claim to divinity right on the coin. And then Jesus, with a masterful stroke of divine wisdom, gives his answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And by that answer, he avoids both horns of the dilemma. Can he be accused of being an insurrectionist, a rebel against the government? No. He endorsed the paying of the, of the tax. He wasn't like a zealot who was saying, don't pay the tax. Could he be accused of idolatry? No. Because whereas he encouraged them to pay the tax, he also said, render to God the things that are God's. In other words, you're to give the tax to Caesar, but Caesar is not one worthy of worship. That is, belongs only to God. And so he couldn't be accused of insurrection, nor could he be accused of idolatry. And by that answer, Jesus silences his enemies and he thwarts this attempt to trap him. Those who heard, it says, were greatly amazed at his answer. And brothers and sisters, so should we be. Amazed at the divine wisdom of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, we're living in challenging times. Never in the history of our nation have governmental authorities at various levels intruded upon our personal and church liberties as in these last couple of years. And so I think this is a good time to springboard off of this text and off of the words of Jesus and bring a couple of messages about our responsibility to human civil government. And so I have three points. I'm only going to cover the first two this morning. And they are these, the Christian's biblical definition of civil government, the Christian's duty to civil government, and then next week, God willing, the Christian's disobedience to civil government. So first, the Christian's biblical definition of civil government. And I say biblical definition because where do we get our understanding of what government is? It's not what we think it to be to be. It's not what we want it to be. We don't get our definition of government from historians or political scientists, either past or present. We get our definition of government from, from God, as revealed in the scriptures. The scriptures are a sufficient revelation for every good work. So if we want to know what government is, what government's supposed to do, let's look to God in the scriptures. And under this point, I have three observations. First, the divine origin of civil government. A few chapters ago, the matter of divorce came up, and so we dealt with the matter of marriage. And we asked ourselves the obvious question, where did marriage come from? Was marriage a human invention, or did it originate with God? And of course, we know the answer. And we do the same with government. Is government a human invention? that God merely tolerates as part of his decretive will. You know, in one sense, the will of God is everything that happens, right? But in another sense, we have his preceptive will. Does God want it to happen? So is government something that just happens and God tolerates it? Or is it something that God ordains and appoints? Well, we have our answer clearly from Romans 13. And I ask you to turn there, Romans 13. That's a key passage, obviously, when it comes to government. And we will spend quite a bit of time there, Romans chapter 13. What is the origin of government? Well, I think this text answers. 
Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. The word established is the word tadagmenai, tadagmenai in the Greek, and it, it comes from the verb tasso, which means to appoint, to arrange, or to assign. So the powers that be, governmental powers, are arranged, appointed, assigned a place by God. This is reinforced in verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. That's the word diatage, and it means the arrangement, the appointment of God. Further, in verse 4, it reads, For it, the governing authorities, it is a minister of God to you for good. It's the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. Government is actually called a servant, a deacon of God. And then in verse 6, another word is used, for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. The word servant, the word leitorgoi, means a public minister, a servant of the state by whom God administers his affairs and executes his decrees. It is used in Hebrews 8, 2, of a priest who ministers in holy things in the sanctuary. Paul actually uses it to describe himself in Romans 15, 16, a liturgos, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. So from all these words, we understand that human government originates with God. It's an institution of God. It's ordained by God. And the emphasis that I think we need to draw from this is the legitimacy of human government. And I might say the legitimacy of every form of human government. Note that Paul doesn't say that certain governing authorities are from God, that certain forms of government are ordained by God, but the clear teaching is that whatever authorities exist, they exist by the ordinance of God. The the Greek is the one's being. The one's being, whatever they are, are established by God. And the proof of this is that in giving these, this sanction, this divine sanction to this uh, government, he's talking about Nero's government, Nero's Rome. And Nero's Rome was uh, the farthest thing from a democracy. It was an absolute monarchy. There were a lot of social abuses. Slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. Taxes were exorbitant. The Jewish religion was far from being respected. But Nero's Rome, according to Paul, was an authority established by God. And therefore, um, it was approved of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God approved of all the wickedness perpetrated by Nero and that government, but the authority itself was from God. Isn't that what Jesus implies when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Caesar has a legitimate place of authority over you. Therefore, you are to recognize that authority and pay him what is due him, in that case, taxes. So we have the divine origin of human government. And even as I indicated at the outset, Genesis 9, 6 If anyone sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That seems to be the beginning of human government. It's not a matter of personal vengeance, but a governmental structure which was to inflict the capital punishment. But now consider the delegated authority of civil government. 
because civil government, along with all human authorities, originates from God, it is delegated authority, it is derived authority. God is the only absolute authority in the universe. Only God is the absolute sovereign. Every other authority besides his is delegated. And I turn your attention very quickly to a couple of the Psalms. You need not turn there. But in Psalm 8, which interestingly is always applied to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, but in Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Yet you, God, have made him, mankind, a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Do men have authority? Are there authority structures? Where does it come from? It comes from God. And Psalm 82 is interesting. Listen to these surprising words from Psalm 82. First, verse 1, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. So he's talking about rulers here. And then in Psalm 82, 6, listen to this. I said, you are God's. Little g, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Human rulers are called gods in a little g sense because God in the big g sense has given them authority to rule in his name and under him. So the implication that flows from this is the fact that government is limited in its authority. All authority other than God's authority is limited because it is delegated it is derived authority. This has implications for what we're going to consider next week when we consider the matter of disobedience to government. If any government or any human authority makes a law or a rule that goes against the authority of God, the choice is clear. God gave them that authority. They have no right to make any law or rule contrary to the God who gave them that authority and so that human authority will have to be disobeyed if we are to obey God. But we'll save that for next week. So civil government is legitimate. Every civil government, but it is limited. And isn't that what Jesus has in mind when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's? Give him his taxes, but don't give him your worship because that is due only to God. Because Caesar's authority is limited. So we have the divine origin of government, the delegated authority of civil government, and now the defined sphere of civil government. You see, the civil authorities have a certain sphere or realm which has been assigned to them by God. And if you want to know what that is, what is to be the main function of government, again, go back to Romans 13. And I think verses 3 and 4 give us the primary purpose of government. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. From that, we get a clear statement as to the primary purpose of human government. What is it? It is to deter and to punish evildoers 
and to encourage and praise the doing of good. And to that end, it has even been given the sword, even been given the power of the death penalty in severe cases. So the, the role of the, of the state is to maintain peace and order in society, as stated by the inspired apostle Paul, or Paul in his inspired writing, I should say. So the state has a defined sphere within which it is to operate. But the state, as you know, is not the only institution established by God. There is also the family, and there is, and so we have husband's authority over his wife, and, and we have parental authority over children. There's the family, and there's the church, which has certain authority. And by the way, these authorities are not arranged in a hierarchy. They are coordinate, side by side. So you have the state with its authority, the family with its authority, and the church with its own sphere of authority. They're not hierarchical, not vertically arranged, but horizontally arranged. They are coordinate side by side. So the state has its sphere, the church has its sphere, and the family has its sphere. The implication of this is the further limitation of the authority of the state. It needs to operate within its defined sphere given to it by God. It may not go outside its sphere. It may not encroach upon the spheres of authority given to other authorities. And just some practical examples, which could be multiplied almost ad, ad infinitum. The state has no right to tell you parents how to educate your children. God has given you those children and the state can't tell you how to educate them. That's the parental sphere. The state cannot tell us as the church who may comprise its membership or when we are to have our meetings or how many can attend or how far they need to sit from one another or whether or not they need to wear masks or get the shot falsely labeled a vaccination. The state has no authority to do that. Likewise with other spheres. As a pastor, I don't have the authority to tell you, you young people, who you may marry. Now, if you're a believer and you want to marry an unbeliever, we're going to call that sin and we may excommunicate you. But as a believer, I have no right to tell you who you may marry. I, may, I have no right to tell you young people where you need to go to college. I have no right to tell you as the people of God to come and mow my grass every week. Now, if you want to volunteer to do that, that's another thing. I have no right to, that's not my sphere of authority. A father has authority over his family, but he doesn't have the authority to baptize his kids in the backyard swimming pool, unless he's an elder in the church or doing it under the auspices of the church. But, but baptism, the keys of the kingdom, receiving people into the, into the kingdom of God is not the sphere of the family, it's the sphere of the church. And we can go on with so many examples. Here's another one. The husband, though he is the head of the wife, may not command his wife not to worship God. And if she becomes a Christian, she wants to be respectful. She wants to serve him as a, as a godly wife. But he may not forbid her from worshiping God. She would have to say, I'm sorry, dear husband. I must obey God rather than man. And God has commanded me to worship him. And so you see this idea of sphere sovereignty. This principle shows the limitation of civil government. It may not contradict the laws of God who gave that authority, 
and it may not overstep the sphere of authority assigned to it. It must not infringe upon authority given to the other spheres, namely the church and the family. It must stay in its lane. It must stay within its defined sphere of authority. So much for that. The Christians, um, the definition of, of government. Now, for the rest of our time, the Christians' duty to civil government And this is not going to be comprehensive because, as we'll see next week, we do have a duty to disobey at times, but I'm not going to cover that this morning. This is more the positive responsibility that we have to human government. And essentially, it's twofold. Submit to government and pray for government. And we're going to spend most of our time with the first, submission. The duty to submit to civil authority. First, I want us to note the emphasis on this duty. If we want to know our major duty to government, we need to go to those major passages which focus on that. If we want to know what is the responsibility of a husband to his wife, where do we go? Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. And we find out we are to love our wives, lead our wives, provide for our wives, protect our wives, nourish our wives, cherish our wives, live sensitively with our wives, and honor them as a joint heir of the grace of life. Now you say, how does that spill off your, your lips so quickly? Because I pray that every day. For me, help me to be this to my wife. I also pray, because she's commanded to respect me, help me to be respectable. I commend that to you as, as husband. If we want to know what the duty of a wife is, you pull together those major passages. She is to be a submissive, respectful helper to her husband. And if we want to know what our duty to government is, we go to the major passages deal with it, dealing with that. And what are they? Well, Mark chapter 12, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. We've got that. We've got Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so, verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. We have Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, another text that gives us our duty to government, and it says, remind them, the people you're shepherding, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. We have First Peter. Peter weighs in in First Peter 2, 13 and 14, when he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it, to the king as one who is in authority or all governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You see the common thread that runs through all these passages. Submission, subordination. This is the predominant duty we owe to civil government. Now, let's go on with an explanation of this duty to submit. What is involved in this? Well, again, if you're looking at Romans 13, we can consider some of the terms that are used in this passage that will really help us to understand what this submission is all about. Romans 13.1 says, be in subjection. That's the word tasso. You know hupo, like a hupodermic needle, it means under, Right? It's under, tasso means to place. So we are to place ourselves under 
the human authority. It is used of children hupotassoing themselves to parents, wives hupotassoing themselves, putting themselves under husbands. It's used 12 times of us believers submiss- submitting ourselves to Messiah, twice of slaves hupotassoing to masters, once to God, once to the law of God, once to the righteousness of God, and it is used of us submitting ourselves, placing ourselves under human government. And we learn what this means further by what is the opposite of that. And again, I'm fighting my way back to Romans 13 here. Listen to verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Be in subjection, and then two words are given that are the opposite of subjection. The first is resist authority. Don't resist authority. That is used in Acts 18 of the Jews resisting the gospel. Six times it is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of military resistance. And then it says, whoever resists has opposed and by the way, resist is anti-tasso. Hupotasso, put yourself under. Anti-tasso is put yourself against the authority. And then the word oppose is antistemi. And that has to do with what we're to do with the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And listen to this. The word resist, which we are not to do because we are to submit 80 to 100 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is used of armed resistance. I think that's significant. What seems to be forbidden here and throughout the New Testament, what God doesn't want us to do with regard to government is violent armed rebellion. And one scholar makes a very convincing case that Jesus and the apostles are trying to fight against the pressure and influence of Jewish nationalism. There was a whole group of Jews that were zealots. They were insurrectionists. And they were exercising an influence. And the New Testament seems to want Christians to resist that influence. And so Barabbas is a zealot. In Acts 5.37, they mention Judas the Galilean, who was killed because he rebelled against the poll tax. Remember how Jesus repeatedly calls his people, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, to love their enemies. He says, you've heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. Where'd that come from? Well, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's legislation. That was to be done by the government, according to Leviticus, right? But the Jews were tempted to make that a a matter of personal justice and, and personal vengeance, taking matters into their own hands. And Jesus said, no, don't do that. It is not for you to punish eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the job of government. You are not to take matters of government into your own hands. It's interesting what Peter says in his first epistle. In 1 Peter 3, 13, he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? There are these zealots violently opposing the Romans. And he used that word, you need to be zealous. You need to be a zealot, but you need to be a zealot for what is good. In 1 Peter 4, 15, an interesting statement. I wonder if you've wondered about this when you've read it. Peter says, make sure that none, he says, 
If you suffer for doing right, that's okay. You're blessed. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's okay for suffering for doing right. But he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Make sure you're not suffering as a murderer. Now, is that something I as a pastor need to rather frequently remind you? Now, folks, (laughs) don't go out and murder. And you think, wait a minute, why is that a temptation to Christians? Well, in the light of zealotry, that's what they did. These zealots who were opposing the government were violently opposing. They were killing people. And so that made sense. Don't be a murderer. Don't be a zealot. And turning back to Romans 12, what precedes Romans 13 is Romans 12. And remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original, and it's very significant, the juxtaposition of Romans 12 and Romans 13. At the end of Romans 12, remember what he says? You know, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What is he saying? Punishing evildoers is not a matter of personal vengeance. And then he comes into chapter 13 and says, there is a place to punish evildoers, but who was given the sword? I wasn't given the sword to avenge myself. The government was given the sword. And so it's rather convincing that the teaching here is to stave off the influence of revolutionary Jewish nationalism in the direction of being submissive. So don't revolt and rebel in a violent way. But further, what is the extent of this duty to submit? The main duty we have to human government is be subject. You see that in Paul. You see that in Peter. Be subject to the governing authorities. To what extent? Can we say, well, I don't like the origin of that government, so I'm not going to submit to it. I don't like the form of that government. It's not a democracy, so I'm not going to submit to it. I don't like the character of those leaders. They are immoral, so I'm not going to submit to it. The answer appears to be that our subordination to any and every form of civil authority is not to depend upon its origin, form, or character. The Roman authorities were not voted into power. They gained that power by conquest. The form of government was not a democracy. It was an absolute monarchy. Caesar did what he well pleased. And as to the character of the rulers, it was despicable. I read that 14 of the first 15 Caesars were homosexuals. So it appears that we're not to submit to government based on any of those things. They really don't matter since we're told, Christians are told to support or to be subject, subject to Nero's Rome. Now, the Jews would have used this argument to be insubordinate against Roman authority. In Deuteronomy 17, 15, God says through Moses to the Jews, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Could you see the Jews using that? And saying, wait, God says we're to have a countryman, a fellow Jew rule over us. How can we be submissive to these pagan foreign rulers? 
Here's the problem. That was for the theocracy. When the Jews were taken into captivity, the theocracy was over. And this no longer pertained. I won't take the time, but in Daniel 2, Daniel is in exile in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he's got this figure that it's a statue with a head of gold and breast and arms of silver and a belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron with feet partly of iron and clay. None of his demonic magicians could interpret it. Daniel is given the interpretation by God. And essentially, what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing in his dream is four kingdoms, successive kingdoms that will rule. And they are all Gentile kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So God himself is authorizing Gentile kingdoms and authorities, even autocratic ones, even bestial ones, such as Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Artaxerxes of Persia, Alexander the Great of Greece, the evil emperors of Rome. They were not nice guys. They were not nice rulers. And so it didn't wash for the Jews to say, but we must have a countryman rule over us. No, God himself appointed the rule over you of bestial Gentile kingdoms. Another argument we might use to not submit to government is, well, wait a minute, governments are to punish evildoers and to praise and reward those who do good. What if the government doesn't do that or doesn't do that to my satisfaction? Does that negate my submission to them as an authority? Well, as a parent, do you always discipline perfectly? Don't you miss some things? You let some things get away and maybe have you ever disciplined too harshly? Does that negate your authority as a parent? No, it doesn't. So the fact that governments don't always get it right and some get it wrong doesn't negate the validity of their authority. It has been said that even the worst government, in, with the worst government, there will be less evil than if there is no government at all. Now, hold on till next week, okay? Wait a minute, are we to be just these doormats? Hold on till next week, okay? This is not the whole picture. But that's the teaching of Scripture so far. What are the expressions of this duty? What does it look like in practice? I want to suggest four things. What does it mean for us to subject ourselves to the governing authorities? We need to show honor and respect towards civil authorities. 1 Peter 2.7 says, honor the king. Now it says, fear God, reverence God, but honor the king. Romans 13.7 says, give honor to whom honor is due. To honor is to show worth of something. Uh, you may despise the character and policies of our officials, but there needs to be some respect for the position. What do we say? Salute the badge. In Daniel 3, the three men about to be thrown into the fiery furnace by a wicked king, nevertheless called him king. Daniel to King Darius, O king, live forever. He gave him the respectful title of that day. Matthew 23, Jesus says of the Pharisees, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. In other words, as long as they're teaching you the law of Moses, do it. It's a legitimate authority. In Acts 23, Peter says something against the high priest. He didn't know he was the high priest, and he was called out on it. He immediately repented. What I'm saying here is we need to be careful with the words and tone that we use to speak of even ungodly leaders. 
We may hate their policies and call them wicked, and we should. We may despise their character, and we should. They're there by God's appointment, and we need to speak of them and treat them with some measure of honor and respect. That's biblical. And then we need to obey authorities whenever possible. Romans 13, 1 and 2, be subject to the governing authorities. Titus 3, 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every human, to every human institution, whether the king or governors. As Christians, we should be known generally not as rebels, not as rabble-rousers, not as stubbornly insubordinate people, but for our quiet peaceableness, our ungrudging compliance, and our obedience with respectful disposition towards civil servants as much as possible. We should be known for our good deeds, such as our, our brother and sister are doing. I read the, I'm reading the book about James Coates, who was imprisoned there in, in Canada. And when the Royal Canadian Mounted Police came on several occasions into their assembly to check out whether they were indeed disobeying the ordinance with a view to punishing them, on every occasion they came in, because of their respect for the police, the congregation, by the elders' direction, gave a standing ovation to those officers. The officers that were going to arrange for their imprisonment and their shutdown of their church, they gave them a standing ovation because they respect the fact that they're trying to police the community and keep our society safe. I thought that was noteworthy. What must these guys have thought? We're here to get them in trouble. They're giving us a standing ovation. And then we are to pay our taxes, right? Pretty clear from Jesus' words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, pay the tax. And uh, Romans 13 says, tax to whom tax is due. And then finally, um, in this regard, we're to seek to influence government for good with every, in every legitimate means. Are we just to sit back and let government do what it's going to do? Or are we to exercise as much influence as we legitimately can to bring righteousness to our government? Well, the latter. We are to inform ourselves about policies. We are to vote conscientiously for the most godly, righteous people. And if God has called you to serve in a position of, of office, well, it's a noble calling. It will have its challenges, but, but we need to be salt and light in the society in which God has placed us. We are citizens not only of the kingdom of heaven, we are citizens of this world, and we need to do everything we legitimately can. And thankfully, in a democracy, still... How long it will last, we don't know, but we still have a say as to what people rule over us. So let's influence as much as we can. Finally, and very briefly, besides submit to government, we have a duty to pray for government, and that is something we remind ourselves often of in the words of 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. I want to read that and say a few brief words and then be finished. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all, then, Paul giving instructions to Timothy as to how to conduct the church in Ephesus. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Note that when it comes to government, even this wicked government of Rome, they were to offer thanksgivings. Thanksgiving for government is to be part of our prayers. And note the end in view. 
Not that the government will be the means of bringing in the kingdom of God. Not that political form, reform may be an end in itself. But we pray for the government so that the government will exercise a restraining of evil that will be a means to creating an atmosphere in which we can cultivate quiet godliness so that the gospel can go forth without persecution. The goal, God's end game, the, game, the end game of, of God here is the salvation of souls. Government is merely the facilitator, the means to that higher end. Many of us have Anabaptist friends. I've worked among the Amish for years. And they say we must not participate in police, military, or civil government. I have an argument against that. We're to pray for the kings and those in authority. I asked my Anabaptist Christian friend, what are we to pray for? Well, we're to pray that they would make good policies that would facilitate peace so that we might live God lives of quiet godliness and we might propagate the gospel. Yes. Should we pray for their conversion? Well, they'd have to say, well, if they got converted, they'd have to leave office. And so then we're back to ground zero again, praying for the... You get the point? You see that? If you pray for them to be converted and Christians can't be in place of the public office, they'd have to quit office. And all you're praying then would be in vain. Anyway, you can think about that and bring that to your Anabaptist friends and hear what they have to say. If there's a good argument against it, I would like to know what it is. So that's it for this morning. Civil government and its authority is of divine origin. It's delegated authority. It's defined and limited in its authority. Our duty is primarily to submit. That means don't revolt violently against the government. It means show honor and respect to government officials. Obey whenever we possibly can. We don't go around with a chip on our shoulder just looking for something to disobey. The rule is generally obey where we can, pay our taxes, and seek to influence government for good in any legitimate way we can. And then pray. So... As you take that in, you have a good conscience about your thoughts, attitudes toward government. Let's bring our thoughts, attitudes, and words into conformity with God's word. Before I close, I want to say, if there are those of you here who are not, if you are not a believer in Jesus, we talked a lot about submission. The main submission you need to do is to submit to God. That's where submission begins. What does that mean? It means that you submit to God's diagnosis of your problem. And God says you're a rebel sinner, separated from him because of your sin. To submit to God means you feel the weight of that, the weight of your guilt, and the, the weight of the thought of standing before a holy God, unprepared to meet him. And to submit to God means you submit to his way of deliverance, his way of salvation. There's only one way, Jesus Christ and his cross. You need to submit to God's way of salvation. There is one God, First Timothy 2, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. May God give you grace to submit to God first for the salvation of your soul. Then you can consider these other matters of submission. Well, let's pray, sing, and come to the supper. Lord, in all things, we want to understand your mind. Thank you that you have given us your word, which is sufficient for every good work 
And you know, Lord, our response to human government is a big deal in our lives, and we need to know. When do we obey? Why? When should we and even must we disobey and why? Thank you that your word is sufficient. Continue to inform us and help us to be doers of it and not just hearers. In Jesus' name.